This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 and two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and My Lotto Rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On December 24th, 1926, thousands of New Yorkers strolled Fifth Avenue, finishing their Christmas shopping and gathering last-minute supplies. It was Christmas Eve, and the city was abuzz with cheer. Seemingly out of nowhere, a man sprinted through the crowd in a panic. His eyes were crazed as he zigzagged up the street, Most New Yorkers paid him no mind. Unusual characters were an integral part of the city. But as the man continued, it became obvious that he was fleeing something, or someone. He ran all the way to Bellevue Hospital. Out of breath, he told doctors that Santa Claus was chasing him with a baseball bat. The doctors and nurses looked outside, but saw no one. No red hat, no red coat. No bat, no Santa, nothing. When they turned back around, the frantic man had fallen to the ground, dead. The medical examiners conducted an autopsy, which revealed he had died from alcohol poisoning. Though it had been six years since prohibition had gone into effect, alcohol-related deaths had only increased. The man who saw Santa was neither the first nor the last of the day. Between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day 1926, 65 New Yorkers dropped dead from alcohol poisoning, and it appeared all the alcohol came from the same source. The United States government. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second and final episode on Prohibition, the 13-year period when it was illegal for Americans to make, sell, and buy alcohol. Last week, we discussed the ways in which Americans broke the Volstead Act. Almost instantly, bootleggers, rum runners, and gangsters flooded the streets with illicit drinks. In order to combat the illegal activity, the government created prohibition agents. However, some of these so-called prohees used questionable methods and even more proved corrupt. This week, we'll explore two theories that both claim that during prohibition, the United States government filled legal alcohol with toxins in order to curb alcohol consumption and punish those who are not abiding by the law. Conspiracy theory number one claims that the spike in alcohol-related deaths of 1930 can be attributed to the U.S. government poisoning an underground drink known as Ginger Jake. And conspiracy theory number two says that four years earlier, in 1926, the unusually high death rate was caused by the U.S. government poisoning industrial alcohol that they knew was being used to make moonshine. In essence, they were killing anyone who dared to break the law. Speakeasies, gin joints, blind pigs, no matter what they were called, they were the place to be if you needed to secretly quench your thirst. By 1922, only two years into Prohibition, New York alone had roughly 5,000 speakeasies. Within five years, there would be more than 30,000. According to journalist Edward Baer, that was double the number of saloons, restaurants, and nightclubs than existed before Prohibition. By the mid-1920s, a full five years into Prohibition, more people were drinking than when it was legal, less than a decade earlier. The federal government knew that something needed to be done to curb consumption. The raids, arrests, and prosecutions weren't enough. They were losing the war. The average American couldn't afford the top-shelf alcohol that bootleggers were bringing in from Canada or the Caribbean. Brands like Johnny Walker or Dewar's were far too expensive, especially in areas like the Midwest and the South. The poor and working class got their fix through drinking low-grade concoctions like Moonshine and Ginger Jake. And our first conspiracy theory is that in 1930, the government poisoned the popular drink, Ginger Jake, as a way to enforce prohibition, leading to the Jake Leg epidemic. Drinks like Moonshine or Ginger Jake were popular because of how cheap and easy they were to make. It didn't take a genius to run a few denatured industrial alcohols through the still or mix together medicines with other highly poisonous ingredients. The effect was all the same. 
It gave the drinker a decent buzz. But unlike commercial alcohol, these drinks were lethal. Moonshine is made of four simple ingredients, grain, yeast, sugar, and water. Though any kind of cereal grain can be distilled into moonshine, cornmeal is the most common. Making moonshine can be broken down into two processes, fermentation and distillation. During fermentation, cornmeal is soaked in hot water and mixed with yeast and sugars. The yeast breaks down the sugars and converts them into ethyl alcohol, or ethanol. All grain alcohol is derived from ethyl alcohol, including those made from rye, wheat, and corn, like whiskey, vodka, and Everclear. Next comes the distillation process, which happens in what is called a still. The ethyl is boiled into vapor in a vat that is typically made from copper. Those vapors run through a tube that is chilled, usually with cool water. The vapor is then condensed. The condensation is collected and appears as a clear liquid, drinkable alcohol. What separates moonshine from the bottles of whiskey sold in grocery stores are two things. The number of times it's distilled and its aging process. The more times a liquor gets distilled, the purer it becomes and the more palatable it will be when consumed. Depending on the type of alcohol, it's aged for years before being bottled. But to keep up with demand, moonshiners during Prohibition bottled after a single run through the still. As such, moonshine never tasted particularly great, nor was it ever pure of toxins. However, not everyone used the typical ingredients needed for moonshine. Sometimes they had to get creative. For those that couldn't find or afford cereal grains for their alcohol production, wood became the next best thing. That's right, wood. Whether it was sawdust, lumber chips, or dead plants, the process of distilling wood not only produced alcohol, but was even cheaper than using grain. Wood gives rise to an alcohol known as methyl alcohol or methanol. Though this wood alcohol doesn't taste as foul as one might expect, it had deadly consequences. And to be clear, all alcohol is, to a degree, poisonous, whether it is ethyl alcohol or methyl alcohol. However, enzymes inside the liver have an easier time breaking down ethyl alcohol or grain alcohol. For reference, a standard 1.5-ounce shot of 80-proof whiskey usually takes about an hour to break down inside the body. In the process, ethyl alcohol breaks down into a poisonous toxin and carcinogen called acetaldehyde. Though the acetaldehyde stage is brief, it's during this period of the breakdown process where much of the liver damage occurs. Eventually, the acetaldehyde is converted into acetate. The less dangerous acetate is then further broken down into water and carbon dioxide, making it easier for the body to flush out the alcohol entirely. Depending on the person, this whole process could take a couple of hours from the last drink or a full day. When it comes to methyl alcohol, however, the breakdown process takes longer. Because of the slower speed, 
the poisonous methyl lingers inside the body and begins to create formaldehyde and formic acid. What initially can feel like a nasty hangover is really the body succumbing to poison. And by slow, we do mean slow. The conversion from wood alcohol to formic acid and formaldehyde can take up to five days. A person could have a sip of the stuff and have no idea that they were being slowly poisoned. And in those five days, it's likely that they might drink more. Together, formaldehyde and formic acid can cause optic nerve damage, even leading to blindness. In many cases, a person who consumed too much methyl alcohol could suffer massive seizures before slipping into a coma and eventually death. Could the government have used methyl alcohol poisoning as a way to stop people from drinking? Well, it isn't out of the realm of possibility. By the end of the 1920s, deaths caused by alcohol poisoning had jumped dramatically. Thousands were dying each year from drinking wood alcohol or other methyls. But as the new decade dawned, cases of methyl poisoning were occurring like never before, in an epidemic called Jake Leg. The first cases of Jake Leg were seen in Oklahoma City in February 1930. As many as 65 men a week were finding themselves losing the ability to use their hands and legs. Most of the paralysis symptoms were below the waist, and some even became impotent. Doctors feared a polio outbreak, but the victims showed no other signs of polio. As journalist Deborah Blum writes, they had no fever, stiffness, muscle spasms, or difficulty swallowing and breathing, they simply, and in the strangest way, began to lose control of their hands and feet. And while many lost the ability to use their legs altogether, several suffered a curious limp. Deborah Blum describes the walk as raising their feet high, the toes flopping downward. Point toes, step, heel down, point toes. The men made a distinctive tap-click, tap-click sound as they walked. Doctors quickly identified that the victims suffered from alcohol poisoning. However, they were confused by the paralysis. In the past, most alcohol poisoning cases only involved blindness or falling into a coma. The paralysis indicated a different chemical than normally used in moonshine. Oklahoma City wasn't alone. By the summer, reports of mysterious paralysis surfaced in Kansas, Mississippi, Kentucky, Texas, Georgia, and Tennessee. The numbers grew by the day and into the thousands. Jake Leg victims were largely poor immigrants and African Americans. As the number of afflictions increased, it infiltrated their culture. Blues lyrics referenced a mysterious drink called Jake, that gave them what they called the lumber leg. When the investigators discovered that the limp had been given a name, Jake Leg, they searched for a connection to a specific drink. It didn't take long for them to narrow it down to a popular pre-mixed cocktail called Ginger Jake. Ginger Jake's main ingredient was Jamaican ginger, an old medicine that was more or less 80% ethyl alcohol that tasted like ginger. 
Jamaican ginger was often used to help with headaches or cramps. So when prohibition began, the U.S. allowed Jamaican ginger to remain legal as a medicine. But pharmacists had to dilute the alcohol content by adding more ginger. Bootleggers turned around and added the alcohol content back in, making Ginger Jake. At first, the typical alcohol used was poor-quality, denatured industrial alcohol. However, beginning in 1928, a pair of Boston brothers-in-law, Harry Gross and Max Reisman, came up with a new formula. Between 1929 and 1930, Gross and Reisman sold roughly 1,000 gallons of Ginger Jake to the south and then across the country. Soon, their formula became the formula, and the Ginger Jake craze caught hold. Having identified the source, a new question was bugging scientists and investigators. What else was in the formula? Because whatever it was, it was poison. By 1930, Ginger Jake had caused a paralysis epidemic. Between 30,000 and 100,000 people suffered the so-called Jake Leg. This had Americans wondering, was it possible that the secret ingredient was a new formula for denatured industrial alcohol, one that hadn't been released by the government until now? Something lethal. The government had changed the formulas for denatured alcohol before, so a lethal chemical on the streets, by accident or design, was possible. But if this theory was true, it would mean the U.S. government had helped poison thousands of Americans. Coming up, scientists uncover the nefarious ingredient mixed into Ginger Jake. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In the spring and summer of 1930, a popular alcoholic drink called Ginger Jake had taken America by storm, but it was leaving thousands paralyzed. It was a mixture of Jamaican ginger and some unknown ingredient, and it left doctors, investigators, and scientists stumped. They needed to identify the unknown ingredient to know how to treat their patients, but test after test came back inconclusive. At first, it was assumed the cause was creosote, a kind of mass that is formed when a person distills wood or tar, but tests didn't come back a match for creosote. It was something similar, but off. As confusion ensued, Americans feared the unknown ingredient was coming from a new formula of denatured industrial alcohol. Outside of religious and medicinal uses, it was the only form of alcohol the public could legally buy. Scientists knew that moonshiners had succeeded in turning government-regulated industrial alcohol into drinkable booze before. Maybe this time was different. Maybe the new formula was stronger or someone was tampering with it. 
It could have been denatured alcohol, or it could have been that something moonshiners were using to distill ginger jake contaminated the cocktail. Americans were fearful. Could bootleggers be participating in a mass poisoning? Was it all an accident? And what even was the secret ingredient in Ginger Jake? It's unclear when the breakthrough came, but after months of testing and experimenting, doctors finally discovered the secret ingredient within Ginger Jake, and they couldn't believe what it was or where it came from. Ginger Jake contained an organophosphate compound known as phosphate, which is a neurotoxin. Neurotoxins latch onto neurons within the nervous system, damaging various parts of a cell structure. In the case of phosphate, the poison attached to the part of the nervous system that controlled movement. The chemical makeup of phosphate is carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and phosphorus. The ring shape the carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen make is similar to that of cresol, a component of creosote, which is why it was hard for scientists to identify. Once the scientists discovered tricresyl phosphate, the bigger picture fell into place. The recipe for the popular formula of ginger jake was Jamaican ginger mixed with a plasticizer. When these two mixed, They created the organophosphate. Plasticizers are substances used to produce plasticity or protect something from becoming too fragile. Because the plasticizer was odorless and tasteless, it was likely added to help hide the smell of alcohol from suspecting prohibition agents. It soon came to light that back in 1928, Harry Gross and Max Reisman, the Boston bootleggers who invented the popular Ginger Jake formula, took Lindol and added it to the Jamaican ginger. Lindol was a plasticizer used in celluloid production. Most likely, the men got their plasticizer from the Eastman Kodak Company in Rochester, New York, or the Celluloid Company of Newark, New Jersey. Adding plasticizer, like Lindol, hadn't happened before in bootlegging. It was a new way to hide moonshine from prohees. And as the scientists continued their research, they were baffled at the chemistry of it all. At the time, organophosphate wasn't believed to cause major harm, but these new studies concluded that it was, in fact, very toxic. More importantly, though, The revelation of plasticizer as the mysterious ingredient showed scientists and doctors that the government wasn't behind the Jake Leg epidemic as some had thought. None of the ingredients in the 1930 tainted batch appear to have come from government-regulated industrial alcohol. In order for the government to be behind this one, officials would have had to have known that bootleggers had turned to a chemical used in celluloid to cut their Jamaican ginger. With that info in hand, they would have then had to tell the celluloid companies to add toxins into that product to make it poisonous, or perhaps tell them to add even more poison to what was already in the plasticizer formulas. It appears the epidemic occurred out of happenstance, just another unfortunate consequence of prohibition. 
Well, on a scale of one to 10, with one for something that is entirely unbelievable or already disproved, and 10 being confirmed history, we're giving this a one. The government, let alone medical professionals, had no idea what the dangerous effects of mixing a plasticizer with ethyl, like Jamaican ginger, would be. But the fear that the government had its hand in the Jake Leg epidemic wasn't without merit. Something shockingly similar had happened just a few years earlier. Which brings us to our second conspiracy theory. The U.S. government poisoned denatured industrial alcohol in 1926 as a way to stop people from drinking moonshine. In the summer of 1926, rumors began to circulate throughout New York City that the government was changing a few of the formulas used for denatured industrial alcohol. By the middle of Prohibition, moonshiners had turned to denatured industrial alcohol as a key ingredient for moonshine. The industrial alcohol provided a greater quantity to run through the still compared to alcohol fermented from wood. But as the year went on, nothing seemed to confirm said rumor. That is, until Christmas. On Christmas Eve 1926, a man came rushing into New York's Bellevue Hospital in a terror. He claimed that he was being chased by a bat-wielding Santa Claus. Doctors could neither confirm nor deny the existence of the alleged Santa before the man dropped dead. They were alarmed that the man had been hallucinating a violent Santa, but they were even more concerned because it wasn't the first hallucination they'd heard that day, and it wouldn't be the last. Between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, 65 people rushed to New York City hospitals. They were hallucinating, vomiting, falling into comas, and stricken with blindness. The worst cases died. In Bellevue Hospital alone, 60 people were admitted and eight people died. A few days later, 23 more would perish, all with the same symptoms. It was clear to doctors that all of these people suffered from some kind of alcohol poisoning, but the sudden increase in such a short span gave doctors cause for concern. Something had to have changed, but what? When Charles Norris became New York's first chief medical examiner, he took it upon himself to use science as a way to solve the mysterious deaths a novel idea in the early 1900s. Prior to his appointment, city coroners were responsible for processing bodies. And by responsible, we mean they more or less just dump the bodies in a grave. If someone died mysteriously, there was little to no effort taken to discover what may have caused the death. Norris wanted to reform the way the city handled suspicious deaths. He, along with a collection of doctors and politicians, lobbied for the creation of a medical examiner's office, and won. Bellevue Hospital was designated as the office for the department, and Norris set out to build his team. He invited a brilliant forensic chemist to help him solve these mysteries, 35-year-old Alexander Gettler. Alexander Gettler loved two things, chemistry and solving puzzles. He quickly earned a reputation for his critical analysis in chemistry, and as his success grew, he became more and more competitive. As journalist Deborah Blum put it, 
he positively hated the idea that some poisoner off the street could outwit him. So when Chief Medical Officer Charles Norris asked him to join his team, Gettler jumped at the chance to solve mysterious, possibly poisonous deaths. Together, their research led to new discoveries in arsenic, cyanide, carbon monoxide, and thallium poisoning. And in the 1920s, that research extended to alcohol poisoning. Neither Norris nor Gettler were particularly fond of prohibition. In fact, in a 1918 article for the Journal of the American Medical Association, Gettler rightly predicted that prohibition would lead to moonshining, adulteration, and dilution of liquors offered to the public. He warned his colleagues that methanol, or wood alcohol, would see a sudden spike in production once prohibition went into effect. As a way to help prevent people from consuming such toxins, Gettler developed an easy test kit for prohibition agents who raided saloons and speakeasies. Gettler discovered that after heating up a copper coil and plunging it into the liquor in question, a chemical reaction would reveal whether or not it was moonshine. If the glass contained methanol, the tester would instantly smell formaldehyde. The detection method wasn't always 100% accurate. The concentration of methanol needed to be high, at least 40 proof, to get the intended results, but at least it was something. And it was something that could save lives. Meanwhile, Norris educated the public on the dangers of wood alcohol. He published death statistics in newspapers and used them as a rallying cry. Prohibition was failing American citizens. The effects were in direct contrast to what was intended. This policy needed to end. Unfortunately, Norris's message fell on deaf ears. And this ignorance only hurt more when people started getting sick from drinking moonshine on Christmas Eve of 1926. When people began to show up to Bellevue and other New York hospitals in swarms on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, it was evident that they were suffering from severe alcohol poisoning. But why had the rate of poisoning increased so staggeringly? Norris and Gettler knew it wasn't just the holidays. After autopsies were performed to confirm alcohol poisoning, Norris tasked Gettler with analyzing the liquor bottles found near the victims, as well as those bottles confiscated from their houses. The results of the tests were utterly shocking. Gettler discovered large traces of methanol, gasoline, iodine, benzene, cadmium, and formaldehyde in the confiscated bottles of booze. Iodine, benzene, or cadmium weren't found in cases of wood alcohol poisoning. These chemicals clearly had to come from moonshine in which denatured industrial alcohol was used. But the chemicals found in the confiscated bottles showed that the formulas used in the denatured alcohol had changed. They were stronger, more toxic, and lethal. Norris and Gettler instantly suspected foul play. And since denatured industrial alcohol came from a single source, there was only one key suspect with the motive, means, and opportunity to have poisoned it, the U.S. government. Coming up, 
Norris and Gettler accuse the government of poisoning its citizens. Now, back to the story. On Christmas Eve and Christmas Day 1926, 65 New Yorkers were rushed to hospitals for alcohol poisoning. Many of them died. It appeared the bootlegged alcohol they'd consumed was unusually toxic, perhaps intentionally poisoned. Within days, New York City medical examiner Charles Norris and his star toxicologist Alexander Gettler discovered that the alcohol consumed by their patients contained high percentages of poisonous toxins. And the specificity of these toxins, benzene, iodine, cadmium, to name a few, pointed to moonshine made with government-regulated denatured industrial alcohol. Simply put, denatured alcohol is ethyl alcohol that has purposely been made undrinkable. Starting in 1906, the United States government required that all industrial alcohol manufacturers denature their supply. The goal was to keep ethyl alcohol used for cosmetics, cleaning supplies, pest control, automobiles, or machinery separated from ethyl intended for consumption. By the time Prohibition started, there were around 70 different formulas for denatured alcohol. Journalist Deborah Blum notes that the simplest formulas just added extra methyl or wood alcohol into the mix. Others mixed a cocktail of bitter-tasting but less lethal compounds designed to make the alcohol taste so awful that it became undrinkable. And that was the sole purpose of denaturing alcohol, to make it undrinkable. But a few years into Prohibition, bootleggers realized people were so desperate for a drink that they would be more than happy drinking straight denatured alcohol. Well, there was a new market for the stuff, despite the fact that it was poison. And where there was a market, there was profit to be had. And there was more profit in turning denatured alcohol into a product that was less dangerous and more drinkable technically known as renaturing the alcohol. Moonshine operations hired chemists for the job. The bootleg chemists asserted that they had figured out a way to filter out the deadly poisons via precipitation, at least most of it. The truth of these claims is up for debate. What we do know is that the spirits produced in these conditions, while toxic, weren't lethal. That is, until Christmas 1926, when dozens of people were dying after consuming moonshine. Charles Norris issued a public statement on December 28th. He wrote, The government knows it is not stopping drinking by putting poison in alcohol. It knows what the bootleggers are doing with it, and yet it continues its poisoning processes, heedless of the fact that people determined to drink are daily absorbing that poison. He continued with, Knowing this to be true, the United States government must be charged with the moral responsibility for the deaths that poisoned liquor causes, although it cannot be held legally responsible. When the public read Norris's statement, they were outraged. Was the government actively trying to kill the very people it was supposed to protect? Were these accusations true? Or perhaps this was just a smear attempt by a man who had a history of being anti-prohibition. That's what Wayne Wheeler believed. 
Wheeler, if you recall, was the head of the Anti-Saloon League who helped lead the charge for prohibition at the turn of the century. He also helped write the Volstead Act. In response to Norris's accusation, Wheeler said, the government is under no obligation to furnish the people with alcohol that is drinkable when the constitution prohibits it. The person who drinks this industrial alcohol is a deliberate suicide. To root out a bad habit costs many lives and long years of effort. Essentially, Wheeler was saying the price of a dry country was hundreds of American lives, and he had no sympathy for the dead. It became a contentious issue. New Jersey Senator Edward I. Edwards called the government's production of denatured alcohol legalized murder. But the Drys still had the power, and they agreed with Wheeler. Instead of denying Norris's accusations, the government doubled down. On New Year's Eve, the Treasury Department declared that industrial alcohol would have at least double the amount of methyl alcohol added during denaturing moving forward. That meant the formulas now contained 4% methyl alcohol. If the stubborn bootleggers continued to sidestep the law and attempt to clean up the 4% methyl alcohol denatured industrial alcohol, the Treasury Department would release Special Formula One. This formula would contain as much as 10% methyl in each batch. The government brazenly admitted that they were going to poison denatured alcohol. They warned citizens. People were gambling with their lives by drinking moonshine. This seems fair on its own. If a product is poisonous and people are warned it's poisonous, they accept responsibility for the consequences when drinking it. But the thing was, this actually wasn't the first time the government had tampered with denatured alcohol formulas. As journalist Deborah Blum notes in her book, The Poisoner's Handbook, from the time prohibition started to the end of 1926, the government created 10 new formulas. The government seemed to know people weren't going to stop drinking so they made it more dangerous. However, bootleg chemists were able to beat some of these formulas. Blum notes the mercury bichloride-infused Formula 6 was easily bypassed, and Formulas 3 and 4 were discarded. But the two most popular formulas, Formula 1 and Formula 5, contained a fair amount of wood alcohol and were even mixed with pyridine and benzene. Both pyridine and benzene are highly toxic. Benzene can lead to bone marrow and immune system failure, and pyridine is believed to cause liver damage. The government was not only aware of some of these effects, but actively produced the mixture in chemicals they knew people were drinking. As 1926 became 1927, cases of methyl alcohol poisoning continued and remained fatal. Dr. Alexander Gettler wouldn't stand by and watch his patients die, especially as he observed an alarming trend. In January 1927, Gettler told the press that the vast majority of the people dying in Bellevue were the city's poor. Gettler revealed that in 1926 alone, 1,200 New Yorkers had been admitted into hospitals after drinking poisoned alcohol and 400 more New Yorkers had died from it. 
The vast majority of these people came from Hell's Kitchen, the Bowery, and the Lower East Side. They were immigrants and members of the working class. It's possible that government officials knew which people, which class of citizen or immigrant, would drink the poisoned alcohol and intentionally targeted them. After all, throughout Prohibition, the wealthy were able to drink top-shelf alcohol. Commercial brands like Johnny Walker or Tanqueray were smuggled in from abroad, where alcohol was still legal and regulated for safe consumption. Naturally, this led to theories that Prohibition was a form of population control or even eugenics. The U.S. government knew that only poor people would drink the moonshine made from denatured industrial alcohol. New prohibition agents were largely unsuccessful in curbing bootlegging and upped the poison in the alcohol anyway, without making it any harder for bootleggers to access. Is it possible this was an intentional move to kill poor people? It's possible, but unsubstantiated. In general, opinions on prohibition appeared to have been divided among the eugenics community, both before and after it became law. Dry eugenicists like Dr. Caleb Salibi argued that alcohol was intended to poison the white race and cause a decline in the Anglo-Saxon population. Meanwhile, eugenicists who were against prohibition argued that the purpose of alcohol was to weed out the weaklings from society. They argued that alcoholism was a disease based on social factors, not genetics. But in simplest terms, there isn't any hard evidence, no memos or letters from government officials that support the theory that the U.S. government specifically targeted the poor with denatured industrial alcohol. Undoubtedly, there were probably those who didn't shed a tear at the thought of immigrants or the poor dying. The 20s were, after all, an era of rampant xenophobia, and eugenics was a popular belief, even if no one was explicitly acting on it. While there's no hard evidence to support the idea of a coordinated attack, who's to say it wasn't in the back of their minds? Well, there was an effort to stop the release of the stronger formula. At the beginning of 1927, many of the wet members of Congress tried to pass a bill that would block the government's right to add more methyl to denatured alcohol. Unfortunately, the powerful dries blocked it. It appeared that the government would continue to release denatured alcohol to the masses. Bootleggers would continue their efforts to renature it with or without success, and the people would drink it, leading to their deaths. In subsequent years, Norris and Gettler continued their crusade against the 18th Amendment. Norris especially published articles with the numbers of those who died each year from alcohol poisoning. He argued that because of this, prohibition was a complete and total failure. In the 1920s, the U.S. government was fully aware that Americans were drinking the alcohol that they poisoned. And for that, I'm giving this theory a 10 out of 10. It's true. Not so fast, Carter. 10 out of 10 is a pretty high score, and I believe the first we've ever given. 
It wasn't as if the government was poisoning, say, the water supplies in cities or towns. They were poisoning a substance that wasn't legally allowed to be consumed and then told people it was poison. Can we really blame the government for that? Mm, Yeah, I think so. They knew that their actions would kill. And when people found chemical loopholes to make denatured industrial alcohol allegedly safe to drink, the government made their formulas stronger. They were imposing capital punishment without giving their citizens the right to a trial. It was premeditated. Okay, but no one forced moonshiners to use industrial alcohol. The government even announced that they were going to increase the poison, and the moonshiners still used industrial alcohol. Aren't the moonshiners who knowingly used the toxic alcohol equally at fault? There's no denying the government played a hand in poisoning its citizens, but I'd consider it manslaughter, not murder. Keeping a gun in the house increases the risk of someone getting shot, but who pulled the trigger here? Using that metaphor, the government was upset when a handgun didn't kill enough people, so they replaced it with an assault rifle. Yes, but the moonshiners were the ones who pulled the trigger and turned a profit because of it. So I can't in good faith put all the onus on the government. Sure, moonshiners might have believed they were making denatured alcohol safe to drink, but it's not like they were running safety tests. So for that, I'm going to give this theory a 7 out of 10. Well, I think we can both agree that prohibition was a failure, and the American people eventually saw it for what it was. Support slowly began to wane. Not only was it contributing to unrest, violence, and a higher mortality rate, but the farm industry was suffering without breweries and distilleries needing grain. Not to mention, the government was missing out on a lot of potential taxes on alcohol. When the stock market crashed in 1929 and the Great Depression hit, the government needed all of the revenue streams it could get. And the economy needed the cash flow that, during Prohibition, was being spent in the black market. In 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt ran for president of the United States and won. He campaigned on the promise to repeal prohibition. During his first year in office, the 21st Amendment that ended prohibition was ratified. Prohibition was a failure, but I think a lot of that has to do with how poorly planned it was. Ironically, by making alcohol illegal, it actually made it more dangerous than before. As historian Daniel Okrant noted, when something like alcohol is illegal, It opens the doors for it to become even more dangerous, as we saw. No matter who you assign the guilt to, it doesn't change the fact that during Prohibition, an estimated 10,000 people died from tainted, denatured industrial alcohol, alcohol the U.S. government oversaw. It's scary to think about. Our current government could never get away with something like that. Well, I'm sure the people of the 1920s believe the same thing. Fair enough.
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. Among the many sources we used, we found The Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Blum especially helpful in our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easier for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Conspiracy Theories for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Joe Guerra with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 